scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 6. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 267. 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 6. And it reads, And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this, do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Maybe may be seated. Good morning. You can keep your finger there. We're going to be working through that passage. First Samuel chapter 24. It's my pleasure to be here. I love this congregation. I love to think about uh, all the growth that's happened at this congregation over the years and how God has blessed you. It's an encouragement to me. Uh, David is someone that I have uh, enjoyed a friendship with for many, many years. Uh, I went to college at Fried Hardeman with David and his lovely wife, and um, I have watched him with a lot of, uh, of honor, and, uh, a lot of, of, of just absolute imp impressed with his spirit, his hum humility, and his commitment to Christ. And I know that the elders here and the fine ministers like Philip uh, have done a tremendous work here, and we really appreciate uh, your light being shined, not only in this part of Tennessee, but throughout the brotherhood and throughout the world. <clears throat> I also want to give a shout out to uh, the fact that you have encouraged so many fine young people. Uh, this earlier this year, as Philip mentioned, um, your young men made a road trip uh, uh, to many, many fine places, talking to men who have tried to apply their faith in their particular vocation of life and uh, try to uh, find some, some role models that they might emulate. And I was honored by the fact that they would come to Faulkner and uh, visit the law school and that I could share some of them, uh, share with them some of my uh, ambitions for the school as one of the only Christian law schools in the, in the country. And, and the opportunity for us to train people and give them and empower them with a degree in law that they might make a difference in their community, not just for good, but for God. And this is a this is a challenging vocation uh, to reconcile sometimes your faith with your, uh, your job. But it is one that I believe that if you can learn how to manage both, um, you can make a tremendous amount of difference. And so I, I appreciate those young men and their willingness to make that kind of trip and to learn and open themselves up to what God may have in store for them. I also think it's important that you encourage the young women. And uh, one of my favorite young ladies that I worship with uh, at uh, the University Church in Montgomery, Alabama, is Abby Latham. And I know that she was encouraged by her time here as an intern. And so I want to encourage you to keep on, to keep on, keeping on. Uh, this morning, I want to share with you a, a photo because as I was making the drive up, <clears throat> You can go ahead and show the first one. When I was making the drive up to uh, Tennessee the last time, I have to admit, uh, uh, I was on my way to uh, Sevierville to speak at Polishing the Pulpit in my little uh, fuel economy car. Uh, I, I saw David driving around in his Yaris, so I decided I had to get me one that would get just as good a gas mileage when I did the, the Wednesday night summer series and spoke occasionally for, at different places. And so I picked up this little Mini Cooper, and it's a little two-door. <clears throat> and I was on my way to PTP just a month or so ago. 
and heading up Interstate 65. And so uh, I was pushed off the road by a 19-year-old in an SUV that wasn't paying attention and was driving too fast. And um, I ended up plowing up about 20, 25 feet of guardrail. You can show them the second photo. And so this photo was placed on my wife's Facebook account. And of course, it got a lot of uh, feedback and attention from those that were at PTP, polishing the pulpit, um, wondering where I was because I was supposed to speak that Friday night. And, uh, and more than one person made a comment to me. Um, they, said, <clears throat> they said, you know, looking at the picture, it was clear to them that God was with me. And I want to talk about this, that this morning. I want to talk about the idea that God, you need to believe, you need to know that God is in control of your life, that he is with you. And uh, even when you can't see him, in fact, sometimes it's in those times when you can see him the least that he's working the most. You know, when I was driving up Interstate 65, heading to Tennessee for the Next time, it was for this weekend. But I had every faith that God would, and his will would be done. And if I was intended to be standing before you speaking this morning, that was God's will. And if not, that would be God's will too. That kind of basic faith goes to the core of what it means to be a person of faith. A man after God's own heart, as David was described. And 1 Samuel chapter 24 is perhaps one of the best illustrations of this basic principle, although it may not be uh, apparent on its face at first. And that's what we're going to study this morning. Go ahead and take a look at that next slide, if you don't mind. The title of my lesson this morning is The Cave. And that's a little bit different uh, title than maybe you expect to see on a Sunday morning service uh, sermon. But... It's, it's meant as a double entendre. It's meant to have a dual meaning. I'm trying to first signal that we're going to talk about 1 Samuel 24 and the cave of the wild goats uh, that David was, was in that, uh, on that occasion. But I also wanted to allude <clears throat> to, a, uh, to the allegory of the cave in Plato's uh, most famous book, The Republic. In this book, uh, Plato has Socrates sharing this, uh, this, this allegory, this, this, this story, and he describes a cave <clears throat> in which people who, have ne- who are born there and have never been out, out in the real world are literally chained to the back of the wall of the cave and having to face the back wall. And they are not allowed because of their chains to turn their head around and see what's behind them. And all they can see are the shadows on the wall. Imagine if an entire people, this was their life experience. What would they think of those shadows? Well, in Plato's allegory, they begin to name the shadows. And they begin to think of the shadows as their reality. It's all that they know are these uh, shadows and, and depictions on the wall in front of them. But in reality, there's a puppeteer behind them who is playing with little figurines and dolls in front of a fire. And the light of the fire is what's casting the shadows on the wall. And Plato has Socrates ask the question, what if you were to free one of those prisoners? 
And they were allowed to get up and walk around and see what was going on behind them. And then he tries to explain how that would just open up their eyes and they would see for the first time reality and the real objects and that everything else that they had known up to that point was but a shadow. Does that remind you of anything? There's a number of verses that talk about the mystery of Christ and how you and I have been able to be freed from the bondage of sin. We have been shown through the inspired word sitting in your lap, Christ in all of his glory and God's will and his plan and his scheme of redemption for each and every one of us because he loved us. And so we're like that freed prisoner. In fact, anybody before the gospel was like these chained prisoners just seeing a shadow. Even those that were faithfully following the old law in the, in the Old Testament, the scriptures say that that was in Hebrews and in other passages, that that was just a shadow of things to come. But Christ is the substance. He's the, the real thing. And sometimes I think we live life as if we're still just looking at the shadows. And this morning, I want you to see it for what it is. I want you to understand that God is real and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There is no more veil. It's been torn away. And instead, you and I can draw near to God and he will draw near to us. That's the promise of scripture. Thank you for that. Let's begin, I think, first by, uh, and you can go ahead and take that slide down so that we can focus on 1 Samuel chapter 24. So turn in your Bibles, because what I'm trying to establish this morning is how we can learn from the way David handles, handles this unique situation, how we ought to approach life ourselves. So start with me in, in verse, chapter 24, starting in verse 1. And one of the things that I want you to see is the context in which David makes this statement that we read uh, just a moment ago in verse 6. And the context is David is being hunted by Saul. And he's being hunted by Saul and, and, and 3,000 of his men. And David is forced out into the wilderness. You know, David Shannon does a great sermon about being on the mountaintop. And uh, I heard him deliver it to some of the young people at Faulkner University a year or two ago. And, and I was uh, moved by that. But, you know, life isn't always one mountaintop experience after another. Sometimes we're in the valley. We're in the wilderness. We're lost. And what I'm amazed is that God not only shows his presence when on the mountaintop of life, but he also consistently shows that he is present even in our darkest hours, even in that valley, that shadow of death. You know, think about the story of the Old Testament with the Israelites and that cycle of, of them being his people, then them rebelling, and then him punishing them, and then, him, uh, then them repenting, and then him reconciling them back to him, and then it all starting 
over again. Even with all of his foreknowledge, his, his, his divine omniscience, knowing what they were going to do, not only in going, falling back into their ways generation after generation, so quickly hardening their hearts, so quickly grumbling and complaining, but ultimately even killing the Messiah that all the Old Testament was looking forward to. Even then, he would take those people while they're wandering in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years, and he, the scriptures say, would make sure that their clothes never worn out that their shoes never had to be replaced, that they had manna from heaven. I mean, think about even in their their darkest hours, even in their, their, their punishment, if you will, God was still present in some amazing ways. And so it's in that larger context that you see Saul and David and their relationship as a second context for this passage. You know, when Saul died, David did three things. First of all, and you can get, get this from uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, uh, 1, actually. 2 Samuel chapter 1. He had three responses. First, he mourned Saul. Now, that's somewhat surprising given the fact that Saul, as you're about to see in this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul was out to get him most of his life. And yet here he is mourning the death of his king. And it's even despite the fact that Saul's kingship was taken away from God and promised to David. And nevertheless, David, it says, mourned his king, Saul, and his son, Jonathan. The second thing David did was he had the messenger executed. You remember the story, the Amalekite comes and tells tells David that he has killed King Saul, their enemy, and thought he'd be rewarded for it. Now, the truth was that Saul took his own life, but that's not the reason why he executed the messenger. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, the reason why David had the, the Amalekite executed was not because he was lying and embellishing the story, but because he didn't get it. He did not appreciate the fact that Saul was God's anointed. And that he didn't have a respect and a fear for that office. The third thing that Saul, that David did when he heard of Saul's death, according to 2 Samuel chapter 1, was that he wrote a song, a lament. And he expressed from his heart the ideas and, and the feelings, the genuine feelings of sadness that he had for the fact that it had come to this. Not that things weren't as they should be. Not that he understood that Saul's kingship was at an end and that God's will was for David to assume the throne. But he loved his king. And more importantly, he understood that God's purpose in that position was one that needed to be honored and respected even until the end. So it's in those two contexts of this ongoing saga of Israelites' rebellion and yet God's ever-presence and in the personal relationship between King Saul and David 
that we come here in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And it says, when Saul returned from the following, from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now folks, <laughs> this is an interesting situation. David at this point recognizes that Saul is the anointed one of God. He's the king. But he also had already been told by God through his prophet Samuel that Saul's kingship would be taken away and given to him. And he understood that Saul was acting out of sheer jealousy and craziness even towards David in his attempt to thwart God's plan. And so here he is in the darkest recesses of this cave, in this, this black, this darkness of, that would totally blind you from being able to see anything. And who starts walking through the, 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 the lit end of the cave but his arch enemy, Saul himself. And here he is cover, hovering in this cave and he realizes that his soldiers aren't with him. That Saul is completely unarmed and helpless. So much so that the business that he was uh, engaged in at the time would have completely occupied him so that he would have been completely defenseless. And so here he is with Saul not aware that he's there and his own men are encouraging him to take advantage of this opportunity to kill Saul. What would you do? I mean, it's one thing to say you believe that God is in control of your life. But the reality is, how often do we take the reins anyway? How often do we not stop to ask God what we should do? How often do we not pray? How often do we not study? How often do we fail to use the light that God has given us? And instead, in the darkness of men's wisdom, we grope our way through this life. And we do what seems good in our own eyes. That's what his men were quick to do. And they were encouraging him to do it. And that's sort of a, 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 the peer pressure that we find in this world of, of course you'll do that. Of course you'll put your job first. Of course you wouldn't worry about church. Of course you don't need to worry about your family. And, and, and it's okay to... to uh, to be unfaithful to your wife or to try again with a second marriage, even though the first one you had no grounds for quitting on. Or, or it's okay for you and me to just recognize the fact that we're not perfect and therefore we can use that as an excuse to do what we will. That kind of blind wisdom of man is really what most of the people that are chained to the wall of life reason with. This, after this evening, I want to talk more about the culture in which we live. 
But I want you to first focus on what the culture of faith looks like. What a person of faith does. And try to consider whether or not you're emulating that or you're emulating the world. So keep reading with me. Because then you see in the next verse, his response to his uh, men. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now get this, right? Why did he cut off a corner of Saul's robe? I mean, here he is. He's got the advantage. His men are telling him, go kill Saul. And David sneaks up behind Saul without Saul knowing it and cuts off a corner of his robe. And Saul's all feeling guilty about that. It's getting to him. It's eating him up. His heart is being pricked by the fact that he cut off the corner of the king's robe. What's the big deal? I mean, he, he didn't do the deed, right? He didn't kill him. What's the point? He is that reverent. He is that respectful of the office of the king that even, even vandalizing the king's property is something that he doesn't take lightly. The fact that he is deceived or tricked or, or snuck up on Saul, it's weighing heavy on his heart. Do you see that a little bit? Now keep reading. So then it says, <clears throat> he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, a couple of things I want you to observe. One is that a man of faith like David doesn't see how close to the line he gets. He not only was mindful of the impact of him taking the life of Saul without knowing that's God's will. He didn't even want to take the corner of his garment. But it goes a step further that he then, not only did he constrain himself, but he he advocated and persuaded those that he was with, his men, to follow his example. How many times in this life are we willing to do what we know is right, but we don't share that light with those around us? Our coworkers, our friends at school, our, the people that we come in contact with on a daily basis, that same waitress that's there every morning, when you get your coffee, that same person that you go pick up your laundry from every week or two, the idea that you and I have to see and f submit ourselves to God's will for our life is part of the story, but it's not all of the story. The other half of it is that we have to try to teach other people to seek after God as well. If you truly know God, how is it possible for you not to want others to know him too? But it doesn't stop there. I want you to understand even a little bit more deeply why it is that David refused to take Saul's life. 
it wasn't just because of the idea or the theory of the divine right of kings. This is a medieval age, medieval concept that uh, King James I and others uh, invoked to assume a lot of power over the people which they governed. And they argued that, you know, Romans 13, you have to submit to the government, to the authorities, right? Because they're ordained by God. And they used that as a, as, a, as a club whereby they would force people to submit, even if what they were commanding was inconsistent with God's commands. You know, there are other passages in Acts 4 and 5, for example, where it teaches that the, there's a limit to how much we have to submit to the government. And that limit is when what the government's forcing you to do is inconsistent with what God has commanded you to do. And in that case, we, like the apostles of the first century, have to say, we're going to do what God commands, not what men command. Now, that principle then suggests that there's a limit to even the authority of a, of a sovereign king like King Saul. And yet, David, despite the encouragement of his, uh, his, his companions, despite the opportunity, appearing to just sort of peer before him, refused to exercise the sword. You wondered why? What was it about the divine anointing that David references in response to his companions that was so important? Go with me and let's take a look at a few scriptures. And to understand what, David was on, what was on David's heart, I think it's important that we see one more context. And that is the several hundred years prior to King Saul's reign. The time of the judges. For about, according to Acts chapter 13, verse 20, there was a 450 year time span from Israel's exodus out of Egypt to the establishment of the first monarchy, King Saul. And this period of time, known as the period of the Judges, is recorded in the book of Judges. And the scriptures repeatedly lament one overriding characteristic of God's people during this time. You can see it in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In Judges chapter 18, verse 1. In Judges chapter 19, verse 1. In 21, verse 25, even. In each of those passages, the overriding characteristic of God's people, the people who were the closest to the creator of this universe, those that had special privilege, those that weren't chained to the wall, but in fact had been shown the light on the Mount Sinai and, and through Moses, they had access to God's will those people fall into a period of time known as the period of the judges in which in these four or five passages, they're described as doing this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it reminds me of those prisoners looking at the shadows and thinking they know what they know because it's what they see. And in fact, they don't know the truth. And the judges were, were, were a period of generation after generation of people doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. And that this self-centered 
self-governing attitude is what you and I this morning have to decide, is that me or am I something different? Am I living my life according to my own standards, according to what I think, what I like, what I read out of the scriptures? If I like it, then that's part of my personal philosophy. Or do you have a God-governed life? where you're submitting to his authority. It's a fundamental choice that people of faith have to make. And that's the point that people of faith can choose either one. Even after you come up out of that watery grave of baptism, even after you've experienced the kind of cleansing that's cleansed you from every sin, That when you come out of the water of baptism, that just as Christ died and, and was buried, so you too, you come out a new creature, even as a new creature. The scriptures say, take heed. Take heed, he who thinks he stands, lest he fall. Why? Because ultimately, if you are standing based on your own set of rules, your own set of beliefs, your own self-governing principles, then you are just like the rest of the world. You're still trying to make sense of the shadows. But if you'll put Christ on the throne of your life and in your heart and allow him to reign there and submit to his authority, then you will find that you will not only have a different standard by which to judge every situation of life, But you'll find that God is actually in control of that life. And all the blessings that you see in Scripture are contingent on this one fact. When you're facing a difficulty like a major car wreck or a sickness in your family, maybe a loved one or yourself, or when you've lost your job and you can't find one for more than six months, or when you feel that you have come to your, your wit's end, And the stress of life has got you down. That ultimately at that moment, in that critical time, even as a Christian, you still have a choice to make. And that is either you are going to get in control of your life or God is going to be in control of your life. You see those scriptures that I read just a moment, alluded to a moment ago about the age of the judges? They don't just say that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They tie that to one additional factor. In Judges 17, 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, and 21, 25, they tie that bleak period of self-governance, of doing what they want to do in their own eyes, what they think is right. They tie it to the fact that, quote, in those days, there was no king in Israel. You see, for David, King, he was respecting King Saul and he was so saddened and mourn and lamenting the fact that when King Saul died, not because of Saul. He knew Saul was petty and jealous and crazy. It wasn't because of Saul. It was because he was lamenting the fact that it's through that king, through the divine anointment of Saul, that God was in control of his people. And that when there was no king, then what that was saying was that the people were just doing what they thought was right in their own 
eyes. And the choice for him when you said was whether or not he wanted to submit to God's will being mediated through a kingship or not. Or to do what he just thought was, his own, was right in his own eyes. And so this morning, I challenge you that if you can understand that basic concept of respecting God's authority and that that being the, the touchstone that separates even those in the church from those that are following after God and those that are following after what they want in their own personal lives and their own personal desires. If you can see that distinction, it's a very subtle distinction, but I believe that's why the scriptures record that David was called by God, a man after his own heart. If you can choose the path that David chose and seek after what God has, has authorized and to submit yourself to God's will in all things and not take any actions, don't take any, do anything or say anything unless you have authority from God for it. That's what the, the message is from Colossians chapter one, right? In everything that we do, do it by the authority or in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that suggests what kind of heart we have. Are we being led by our own wants, our own desires, the carnal flesh, or are we being led by God? And if you can make that choice, then scriptures start opening up to you that show that God will do more than you can ask or you can think of. Ephesians chapter three, verse 20. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That God will always provide a way of escape. There is no temptation that we can't overcome according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Because he will always provide a way of escape. That doesn't mean that you won't have to endure it because the rest of that verse says, so that you will be able to endure it. You will have problems in this life. You will face obstacles in life. You may find some kind of overwhelming situation, but the question is, in the determination of whether or not you're gonna be able to overcome that situation turns on one simple fact. Are you allowing God to take control of your life? Are you fully submitting to his will in every aspect without exception? Have you humbled your Yourself? Have you died to yourself? Have you mortified your body to the point that you're willing to listen, to humble yourself before him and say, whatever your will is, that's what I will do. If you're there, there is no temptation that you can't overcome. There is nothing that you can't endure because he will provide a way of escape. Do you believe that? One more. Romans chapter eight, verse 28 is this beautiful promise. It's a promise that you and I want to take. And the world that, that has this, this sort of nominal Christianity that they practice constantly grab verses like this that say, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. But they never stop and ask the simple question of what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to have a heart like God. What does it mean to be a person like David? And Jesus told you the answer. Not once, but twice. If you love me, what? John 14, 15. John 15, 14. Keep my commandments. You see it? It's not about legalism. It's not about earning your salvation. 
It's about a heart. It's about an attitude. It's about a submission. It's about a will. Is it your will or his will? That's all you have to decide. And if you decide to put his will first in your life, then you love him. And if you love him, then you have the promise that all things will work together for good. The good and the bad, the easy and the hard, the mountaintops and the valleys, they'll all work together for your good. You know, those are three promises that are contingent, that are, they're open to all of us, but they're contingent on us being willing to die to ourselves and to submit our lives to God, to be a slave to righteousness, to walk in the light, 1 John 1, to walk in the spirit continually with God and with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, Romans 8. This morning, I don't know if each and every one of you have made that kind of decision for the first time. If you haven't, if you are a believer, if you believe that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God, if you believe that God exists and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him like Hebrews promises, and you're willing to allow that belief to be a saving kind of belief, the same kind of saving faith that the Philippian jailer experienced, then you know what's going to happen? When you hear from God's word that you need to repent, you're going to repent. When you hear that God's word says that you need to confess that belief, that faith before men, you'll confess it. When you hear from God's word in response to questions like, what must I do to be saved? That you need to repent and be baptized, then you will be immersed for the remission of your sins. You have that kind of belief, that kind of faith that is almost in an instinctive, absolute submission sort of way, obeying the gospel. Then you can come to know God. And you can know that when the wrath of God comes on the, on the day of judgment, it won't come for you. Because you will be able to say that you know God and you have obeyed the gospel. If you're a penitent, confessing believer that's willing to be baptized for the remission of your sins this morning, then you can die to yourself and live for Christ. You can experience the kind of transformation that will cause you to be known as a new creature, a new birth, to know that your sins have been washed away, like even Saul, who was later named Paul's, were in Acts twenty-two sixteen. But let me speak for a moment before we extend the invitation to those of us that are already Christians. That we're supposed to have already died to ourselves. That we're already a new creature. That in, according to passages like Galatians chapters 3 verses 26 and 27, we put Christ on like a, a white robe in baptism. Have you allowed that sacrifice to go to waste? Have you lost your first love? Have you failed to recognize that when we sin and engage in habitual sin and rebel against God, even now, that we're just crucifying Christ afresh? And that white robe is one that will continually stay white, according to 1 John chapters 1 and 2, if you will but confess your sins... Because the scriptures say that he is just and able to forgive you of those sins. 
So as a child of God, you have this ongoing relationship that will never be broken by him. But are you in need of accessing that blood once again? If so, why not this morning confess those sins? He is just and able to forgive you once again. Whatever your need is, please come as we stand and sing.